Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The UK is past the worst of its second wave of coronavirus as attention turns to how and when to lift the nationwide lockdown. Yes, I mean, I think that most of my colleagues think we are past the peak. Provided people continue to follow the guidelines, we're on the downward slope of cases of hospitalizations and of deaths. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest COVID-19 developments, as you heard from Professor Chris Whitty at the top, progress with the vaccine rollout, the threat from mutant variants, the latest on the lockdown debate, and what's going on with hotel quarantine. Joining to discuss our in-house expert science editor Clive Cookson and health editor Sarah Neville. And later, we'll be looking at the troubling situation in Northern Ireland over the trade deal between the UK and the EU. What are the problems? Can they be solved? And has the EU's actions over the last fortnight made it worse? Political editor George Parker and public policy editor Peter Foster will be unpacking. Sarah and Clive, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Seb. Thanks very much, Seb. Well, we've all made it through January and the darkest, coldest part of the year and also yet another lockdown. As I'm sitting here in North London, it's quite sunny. We're surrounded by relatively good news. So with the day getting a bit longer, it's feeling a bit more optimistic. So Clive, how are you doing at the moment? The sun is shining outside my window and I'm definitely in better spirits. The up is, as Chris Whitty said, all the indicators are showing falling infections. Vaccinations are racing ahead, over 10 million in the UK. The downside, which is the one thing depressing me, is the arising of these new variants and mutations within the variants. Well, we'll not get too depressing for the moment, but I have to ask you as well, Sarah, how are you feeling having made it through the first month of January lockdown? And we know that we've probably got another six weeks still to go. Well, I have to say I would be feeling immensely different if it were not for the vaccines. I was just thinking the other day how incredibly hard this time would be if there were no viable way out of it. And every time I hear of a family member or a friend who's been invited or actually had their jab, that for me is the thing that's keeping me going. The prospect that possibly even by, I don't know, the middle of March, I could have had my first jab and feel a kind of freedom that I really haven't felt since March last year. Well, on that optimistic note, let's move into the main topic of the week. It was a broadly upbeat, although mixed picture this week on the UK's battle against coronavirus. On the one hand, vaccinations topped 10 million, with 20% of the adult population having received a jab. But the emergence of several new mutations of the virus raised questions about the efficacy of vaccines and whether new jabs would be required. All this is feeding into the brewing debate about when society can open up again. We know the schools will begin to return from March the 8th, 
but the debate about shops and hospitality rages on. The Vaccines Minister Nadim Zahawi told MPs that the Johnson government will not be rushed. The 8th of March is the plan to reopen schools and then gradually reopen the economy. Uh, I think it's important to also wait for the, uh, the evidence to be able then to share with the House on the 22nd of February the roadmap of how we intend to open back up the economy very gradually. So Sarah, let's begin with the vaccination programme. It appears to be pretty wholly good news that it's moving at a pace of hundreds of thousands of jabs delivered every day. And there was a couple of days where it passed 600,000, which is really quite incredible. Will this rate be kept up, do you think? I think one perhaps slightly worrying thing is that round about the middle or end of March, all the people who've had their first doses of the vaccine will be coming back for the second. Here in the UK, we took the decision to widen the dosing interval to go significantly beyond the period, certainly which had been tested in clinical trials for the Pfizer-BioNTech jab. AstraZeneca and Oxford had actually tested their jab on a wider dosing interval. But the fact that the vaccination committee and the government have decided to extend that to about 12 weeks is going to start creating a quite significant crunch with a load of people needing to be absolutely prioritised for that second dose, which inevitably is going to slow down the rate at which we can bring the next cohort onto the programme. And I think that's clearly going to be something that the government is going to have to manage in the sense of how it communicates with the public, which has got used to these really quite amazing and very cheering daily totals. But it's possible that the daily totals may remain, but a significant proportion of them may be made up of people getting their second jab. Yes, Clive. And obviously, a lot of this is relying on the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has had some new data out this week, which has shown it has buttressed the UK's approach of having a longer gap between the first and second jabs. And data from Oxford University suggests that that does provide good protection, but also crucially, initial findings that the vaccine is reducing transmission of COVID by a big rate. Can you tell us about that and why it's important? It's important because Although it'll be wonderful to reduce the number of people going to hospitals, release the pressure on the NHS, what we really need if we are going to achieve the fabled herd immunity and really stop this virus spreading through the community is stopping transmission. As you've said, there seems to be, according to this, limited data, but still reliable, I hope, 67% reduction in transmission in people who've received the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, I have to say, this isn't really a surprise. I think scientists would have been astonished if all these vaccines, not just this one, but the Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna and others, if they didn't reduce transmission, as well as reducing severe symptoms. But it's great to have it actually confirmed. And another thing that's just been confirmed is that the regulatory agency in the UK, the MHRA, is finding extremely low levels of side effects. So these vaccines, both the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Oxford-AstraZeneca, are extremely safe. 
Well, that is, again, good news. Now, Sarah, we have to flip this on the other side as well, because we've seen a rise in new mutations. And there is a question, of course, about whether these vaccines are going to be effective against new mutations. And a couple of the producers have said that they could adapt their vaccines for potentially a booster shot later this year. Yes, that's right. That is the one cloud, as you rightly say, hanging over the vaccine optimism. Clive will be able to talk in more detail on the science, but I think it's fair to say that the sort of general story is that the vaccines are effective against the so-called Kent variant, because that was where it was first identified. It's now very much around the world. But there is a diminution of effect against the South African variant. And the other thing that's emerged this week is that a sort of hybrid variant has been spotted, a combination of the Kent and the South Africans. So there's no question that this is something that's preoccupying the vaccine developers, the regulators and the government. Yes, Sir Clive, so how worried should we be about these new variants that Matt Hancock has spoken this week and said that they're introducing surge testing to eight different postcodes, which means everybody there is urged to get a test. And although they haven't changed the law, they're saying absolutely try and stay at home as much as possible. And what's the signs we know about these so far? These variants are troubling in two ways. One, they're much more infectious. They increase the efficiency with which the virus can pass between people by around 50%. There's not much we can do about that. That's why they're dominating transmission in the UK, South Africa, and Brazil, and other places. The second thing, and the particular concern this week, is that there's a mutation which was already present in the South African and Brazilian variants and has now taken place at least to a small extent in the Kent variant, which makes it harder for the immune system to recognize and stop transmission in people who've either received vaccines developed against the older strains of the virus or people who were naturally infected with the older strains and are therefore at greater risk of reinfection. Now, I have to say it's not all or nothing. There's already clinical trial data from a couple of the vaccines in South Africa, which shows they don't become ineffective. The efficacy goes down from round numbers, 80, 85%, maybe down to 50, 60%. They'd still be worth having, but it does, as Sarah indicated, probably mean that new variants of the vaccine will have to be developed Mm. later on. Now, Sarah, let's look at how all this feeds into the lockdown debate, because we know a rough timetable of what's going to happen next, that come the week, the 15th of February, Boris Johnson will look at all the data, the efficacy, the transmission, all the things Clive have been talking about, including new mutations, and will set out a roadmap that will then be published on February the 22nd. And we're expecting a debate in Parliament that week. And the only firm date we know is that schools are set to return on March the 8th. And then we've done some reporting this week that suggests that non-essential shops are likely to come in April and hospitality come late April, early May at that point there. Based on the pace of the vaccine rollout, does that seem right to you? And how much of a debate is there going to be between the politicians who, as we know, are always eager to get things open as soon as possible, and the scientists who want to have as much caution as possible? This has been, in a way, the central tension 
throughout the UK government's pandemic response. I think what so often happened is that the government has overridden the scientists and has prioritised the opening up of the economy. If we look back at the way the last 12 months has unfolded, there are some quite cautionary tales in there about the advisability of doing that. So I'm sure those debates are going to play out in exactly the same way. I think the question is, will this one be concluded differently? The sheer length of time, you, you touched on it at the start, Seb, that we've all been living in lockdown the narrative around the vaccines, you know, the second you have your jab, you're safe. I think all of that is going to make it perhaps the job of the scientists, people in the NHS looking at hospital capacity, perhaps even harder to get traction against those pushing hard for the return to normal life. You know, Matt Hancock talks seemingly constantly about the Great British Summer. I think possibly, to be fair to him, there is accent on the British there that He's not necessarily saying that we're all going to be able to jet off around the world by this summer. But I think the sort of collision between the scientists, the weight of public expectation and the government's awareness of the immensely sensitive politics around this is going to make for a rather sort of difficult cocktail in the next few weeks leading up to this promised announcement by the Prime Minister on February the 22nd about the roadmap ahead. Clive, what are you hearing on this from the scientific community? Because we saw Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, saying that we should not have a significant reopening until infections are down to below a thousand a day. And I think the last point we were at that was in August. It feels to me as if we're not going to wait that long because, first of all, obviously, we know Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak want this to be the last lockdown. They don't want to have to go through this all over again in a couple of months, as we saw throughout 2020. But once schools open again, once the vaccines pick up pace, you have to wonder whether it's going to be hard to store that momentum for things to get back to normal. It will be very hard. Scientists who focus on the disease itself the COVID specialists all say that every lockdown has been imposed too late and lifted too soon. And if you look at infection with coronavirus, that's clearly true. But there are other scientists who are looking more broadly at the effects, particularly on mental health. And they, I think, will increasingly weigh in on this debate in favour of judicious reopening more quickly than would be justified if you just wanted to suppress the virus. For example, I wouldn't be surprised if, for reasons of morale, hair salons weren't allowed to open before non-essential shops. So there are a lot of difficult ingredients here, and I'm dying for a haircut. I think we all know that feeling as well. I think finally, Sarah, the other thing that's developed this week has been about hotel quarantine. And this is the government's efforts to stop new variants coming in. And there's been much debate about the pros and cons of this policy and whether it works. They finally announced this is going to come in on February the 15th for those coming from, I think it's 30 countries that are designated covid red spots. The issue with this hotel quarantine is what's the exit strategy from it? And you could see a situation that the UK is blasting so far ahead on its vaccination rate that many more countries who are behind get added to this list and the prospect of that summer holiday is sort of reduced dramatically. This is something that the government has done reluctantly. I think sort of all the way through in the past year, it seemed to me that they've 
shied away from doing anything that would undercut the image of global Britain, this little island nation that's always been so open to people coming in to boost our global financial centre particularly. So it's been a struggle for them to get to this point. Arguably, this is the definition of shutting the barn door after the horse has bolted. But it's an interesting question as to whether now having taken that plunge, they'll now get locked into having to do this even more extensively for even more countries and perhaps tarnish that image of the UK as a country that's always welcomed the best from overseas. Part of our self-image that is particularly important as we carve a different sort of status post-Brexit. Sarah and Clive, thank you very much. Northern Ireland was one of the most contentious parts of Brexit. Within the withdrawal agreement, there is a special protocol to ensure there is never a hard border on the island of Ireland. But it came at the cost of significantly more intrusive checks on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The situation has been messy so far and the disputes over this protocol were heightened when the EU accidentally triggered something called Article 16 in recent days, which temporarily overrides the protocol in very heightened circumstances. Although all sides walk back from the brink of a dispute, it has created much bad faith. Arlene Foster, Northern Ireland's First Minister, has said she wants this protocol gone. We trade uh, most with um, the rest of the UK and we get most of our goods from Great Britain. And the disruption that has been caused by the protocol is very, very stark. So Peter Foster, welcome back to the podcast. Kick us off by explaining this protocol and why is everyone talking about it? Well, you know, to go back to first principles, this protocol is the mechanism which avoids Brexit creating a hard border in Ireland. Remember, we leave the European Union. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. So the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland becomes an external border of the EU. But under the Good Friday Agreement, that border effectively disappeared. And so the question was, how did the UK leave the EU single market and customs union and not put a border back in Ireland? And the answer was, when you might remember all that fuss about alternative arrangements using technology, but all of that was thrown out as completely impractical. And the answer was effectively put a trade border into the Irish Sea so that all of the goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland follow the EU's customs code, rules and regulations, often very complex ones on food and drink, etc., in order that you don't need checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So fundamentally, that is what the protocol is there for. The trouble is that that creates a barrier inside the internal market of the United Kingdom. And if you're a member of the Democratic Unionist Party or a unionist in Northern Ireland, that makes you feel like you're being cut off. You're you're a limb of the United Kingdom. You're no longer part of it. You're part of the regulatory orbit of the EU. And of course, Boris Johnson and the Democratic Union Party have always been somewhat in denial about the fact that if you're not going to have a border in Ireland, you're going to have to have one in the Irish Sea. Well, George Parker, the thing about this protocol was it's a key part of how Boris Johnson got his Brexit deal. Because before that, there was this thing called the backstop, which I'm sure we're all delighted to recall, which would see the whole of the United Kingdom fall within the EU's trading and regulatory orbit if there wasn't a deal to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. But Tory MPs didn't like that because it meant that the UK couldn't divert away from the EU's trade and regulatory orbit. So when Boris Johnson became PM, he junked the backstop and replaced with what's been called this front stop in the protocol, 
Is this a direct influence of the protocol or has something else gone wrong? No, I think it was always going to happen. I was speaking to Gavin Barwell this week, who was Theresa May's chief of staff, who was heavily involved in trying to come up with an alternative to this. And he said, look, this was predictable and predicted that this would happen because the deal that Boris Johnson signed, the protocol, does lead to enhanced checks on that crossing between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You know, Boris Johnson never seemed to quite accept it. And I was speaking to someone else who was involved in that period who said that Boris Johnson, after he signed the Northern Ireland Protocol, felt like he'd signed it under duress in some way, and therefore he was never really committed to it. He didn't seem to be across all the details. I remember being at one press conference in the 2019 general election where he kept on saying that there would be no checks on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which was palpably untrue. And now the protocol is in force. It's only been in force for just over a month. And already we're seeing exactly the kind of problems regarding checks on that crossing that Theresa May and many other people predicted would happen. Now, Peter, these tensions we're seeing, can you explain to us what's happening on the ground there? There's been various reports of supply chain issues, problems with computer systems, problem with paperwork. What have you been picking up? So, you know, what you're asking Great Britain traders to do is to absorb a whole load of new bureaucracy and paperwork. And that has caused problems for hauliers, for people shipping animal and plant products, or alcohol, anything that is on the prohibited list into Northern Ireland, it's caused problems. Famously, Percy Pigs in the Marks and Spencers branch in Belfast. It hasn't been an Armageddon. I think people need to be clear about that. There haven't been widespread shortages in the supermarket shelves, but it has caused difficulties, particularly for hauliers. There's all sorts of complications about how you pick up different loads of meat from different places and group them together on a lorry. But the important thing, Seb, is that the EU gave us a three-month holiday on having to fill out full paperwork. So all the problems you've seen with the protocol have taken place before the end of the grace period. So from April the 1st, according to the rules, everything is going to need an export health certificate. It's going to need full compliance with the Union Customs Code. Now, I think that is going to slip. Michael Gove and some of the retail and, and trading groups in Northern Ireland have been saying, look, you've got to give us more time. And the EU is sort of accepting of that quietly, but also worried that there's a kind of slippery slope here and that the Brits don't just want more time. They're actually trying to wriggle out of the protocol as it stands, which is if you don't want a border in Ireland, which none of us do, there's going to have to be an effective border in the Irish Sea. And that border is actually going to get harder to maintain over time if the UK does a trade deal with the United States and diverges further from EU rules on plant and animal products, for example. Now, George, the catalyst for talking about this is Article 16. And this is a provision within the protocol that means that part of it can be temporarily overridden or suspended in certain circumstances. And this Article 16 was almost triggered by the EU over a dispute over vaccines. And basically everybody has kicked off over it. Well, it was one of the European Commission's darkest moments and certainly the worst moments, I think, since Ursula von der Leyen became the Commission president. It came at the end of a week where the Commission seemed to be increasingly flailing around because of its failure to deliver an effective vaccine programme. And it culminated on a Friday night where the Commission said that it was going to invoke this Article 16 override mechanism, which basically would allow it to impose the very border Peter's just been describing on the border of Ireland, in this case in relation to vaccines. So the idea was the European Commission wanted to stop vaccines leaving the European Union and entering the United Kingdom. And of course, Northern Ireland is a backdoor to the United Kingdom market. So they effectively created border checks in Ireland for the purpose of life-saving vaccines. So it's a massively inflammatory move, made worse by the fact that they hadn't consulted the British government, the Northern Ireland administration, and worst of all, 
the government of the Irish Republic, which is, of course, the member state of the European Union. So it was hastily withdrawn a few hours later. But the problem was that having set the precedent of being prepared to invoke this Article 16, basically being able to say, look, in extreme circumstances where there may be societal difficulties, and by this the EU meant that there could be societal difficulties in the EU if they ran out of vaccines, that the protocol could be suspended. And that, of course, opened the door for the pro-UK unionist community in Northern Ireland to say, aha, so the EU is prepared to stop the operation of the protocol in certain circumstances if there are societal difficulties. Well, it's causing us societal difficulties in Northern Ireland because the unionist community are feeling increasingly cut off from the rest of the United Kingdom. And that, of course, has really led to the political crisis we've seen over the last few days. So, Peter, where does this go now? Is there any real prospect of the UK returning the favour and triggering Article 16, which would be a very provocative move? It's something that the DUP have called for over the past week. Well, I don't think it's impossible that the UK triggers Article 16. I think there is real frustration, Seb, in Whitehall, in Michael Gove's office, the letter he wrote to the European Union spelling out all of the issues with the protocol. If the EU doesn't move, I would not be surprised if the UK starts to take some form of unilateral action. But temperatures are pretty high in Whitehall on this incredibly clumsy thing that the European Commission did by threatening to trigger Article 16 in a sort of fit of legal tidy-mindedness, it seems, has really inflamed uh, uh, passions in Northern Ireland. And I think they need to do something to settle it down quite quickly. And I'm not sure the European Union fully appreciates where things are in Northern Ireland and in the UK. Well, George, some of the things we've seen from Northern Ireland are pretty concerning. The sort of things that people have warned about could result if Brexit was mishandled. There's been some border guards who have been threatened and aren't turning up to work. And the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, who we mentioned earlier, they are particularly irate too. So what do you think the situation is there? And we should also just reflect for a moment on what a situation the DUP have got themselves into. Because from 2017 to 2019... They were probably the most powerful political forces in Westminster. You know, they were holding the sword over Theresa May's government. They were the ones who sunk her Brexit deal, however many times she tried to get it through the House of Commons. And yet Boris Johnson just came around the back, betrayed them, and now they have no power or influence at all. Yes, the DUP have made a major strategic blunder. I mean, suddenly their influence is lost. And there's a border in the Irish Sea, the very thing they were seeking to avoid. And their popularity in Northern Ireland is falling as well. So All those things have made the DUP a more unpredictable force and made the situation even less stable. Going back to the tensions in Northern Ireland on the ground, I mean, you mentioned the fact that Port's officials in Larne and Belfast have been withdrawn from work. That decision was taken by the local DUP leadership. And there will be some scepticism, and indeed there is some scepticism in Brussels about the timing of that, because it's only sort of added to the pressure that uh, the British government and the DUP have been trying to exert on the European Commission to make concessions on the protocol, on the grounds, look, you can see what you've done here. You made this mess, Brussels. You've created tensions on the ground. You've destabilised the precarious peace process. You've got to do some stuff to reduce the need for checks on that Irish Sea crossing. And it seems to me that the European Commission is going to have to make considerable changes to the way that the protocol operates, or at least extend those grace periods on enforcing the checks. And then hopefully things will settle down because the alternative to the protocol working is the danger of a border on the on the island of Ireland, which of course would massively inflame tensions in the other community in Northern Ireland, the nationalist community. And one final thing I'd say is don't forget that if the protocol works effectively and the checks are reasonably 
applied on that Irish Sea crossing, Northern Ireland will be in a unique position inside the UK. They'll have a foot in the UK single market and, of course, a foot in the European Union single market uniquely. So as a destination for inward investment, Northern Ireland would theoretically be about one of the best places you could put your money. And finally, Peter, as well, you know, a lot of people have been saying that the protocol makes sure that Northern Ireland is going to be closer to the economic orbit of the EU than the UK. Where do you think that debate goes in the coming years? It is probably a longer term thing. It's important to remember that, you know, for services and banking, etc., Northern Ireland is firmly in the UK's orbit. But I do think over time, Northern Ireland is inevitably going to feel further away from Great Britain than it does now. I mean, the most important thing to remember in all of this is that neither the Irish government nor actually the British government, and certainly not the European Union, has an alternative to the protocol. You know, unless Boris Johnson's going to backtrack and do a Swiss-style veterinary agreement and start to realign the UK on goods and other regulations in a really substantial way, essentially start to inch back towards Theresa May's deal. I can't see how it changes. And given that nobody wants a border in Ireland, you know, we are stuck with the protocol. We just got to make the damn thing work. And that is going to require, I think, more recognition that actually the Irish sea border is not the Dover-Calais border. You know, the EU need to imagine what it would mean to have an internal border in their own countries, in France or Germany. Yes, Boris Johnson signed it. Yes, he's not helped by constantly underplaying what he did. You know, the original sin in this is Boris Johnson's, but it's done. There isn't an alternative. Brexit is done. We have to make this thing work. George and Peter, thank you very much for joining us as always. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We've been Payne's Politics since last summer, and we love hearing your feedback. So do get in touch and let us know what you think, or leave us some nice comments or a positive rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.